Turn your Bibles to the Lucan Gospel, the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. Today we begin a new series, a sermon series from Luke's Gospel. I hope you'll commit yourself to joining me for this journey through the Gospel of Luke. And if you can't be here on a particular Sunday, I hope you'll go to our website and play and catch up for these are woven together as one like the gospel of Luke and commit yourself to hearing every sermon in the series from the gospel of Luke. Well, let's look at Luke chapter one, verse one. And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. That'll be the title of our series, Things Accomplished. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you to, in a consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Browse through any bookstore, coffee shop, and You'll notice curious readers combing the shelves and search for their next great read. Because we invest an enormous amount of time digesting the drama of a new book, we want to make sure that we're going to be captivated by the storyline to make sure certain that we're not on a long literary journey that's taken us to a dead-end destination. So we quickly scan the jackets of books with catchy titles and every good marketer of books knows you've got about 30 seconds to capture the reader scanning the jacket to invite them in deeper to the contents within. Well, ancient books were written rolled up scrolls. So there was no book jacket to capture the possible reader. So the writer's antiquity Use those first few sentences to explain what the book was about. The, the beginning of the scroll is like the book jacket. And so it is here with verses 1 through 4 in Luke's introduction. Luke does no less. The opening words, Luke lets his readers know that while he has read other accounts of the story of Jesus, he himself has investigated the claims and consulted with the eyewitnesses to tell the whole story in an orderly sequence. He desires for his readers to know the precise truth about Jesus. Thus Luke presents himself as an investigator who carefully weighs and tests all the facts and stories about Jesus. Confidence in his account, he asserts, comes from the, the fact that he's using rigorous research before he writes. And although he has access to some other earlier accounts, and surely that must include some of the other Gospels, perhaps especially the Gospel of Mark, he knows the verse 2, the servants of the Word, other servants of the Word have written about Jesus. And the word for Luke is no less than the hope that comes in the resurrection, the empty tomb of Jesus. Well, in verse 3, he uses two words to describe the way his gospel is going to be written. First of all, he's going to write it carefully. And secondly, it's going to be orderly, carefully 
and orderly. By carefully, he means that he will personally investigate everything that he reports in this gospel. All the traditions handed down in oral or written form about this rabbi by the name of Jesus, Luke will carefully investigate them, perhaps with a precision that only a physician could have. Not only will he be careful about what he tells us about Jesus, it will be orderly. To say so is to say it will be in the sequence of events, presenting the stories to bring full understanding and enlightening to all that Jesus has done. Well, notice to whom he writes, verse 3. He writes to Theophilus. Now, some, the name means lover of God. Theos is God and Philos is love, lover of God. Some suppose this is just an imaginary name, a symbolic name for all of those who love God, but it's not really presented that way. It's a personal name as well, Theophilus. And so likely there's a patron who's actually paying for Luke, the expenses, the copying, the writing of this manuscript. Maybe he's a patron and notice he's most, most excellent. So he's probably actually a Roman official as well. Someone who's well-to-do, who's undergirding the writing of the gospel of Luke. Theophilus has heard some things about Jesus, but there's more that he needs to know. And so Luke says, I will do it orderly and I will do it carefully. Most excellent Theophilus, I want you to know about the things, verse 4, you have been taught. I want you to have the exact truth. So this morning, as we begin studying this gospel, not only will Theophilus get the exact truth about Jesus, but we will too. The first section of this early chapter is verses 5 through 25. From the barren, John will be born. 5 through 25, from the barren, John will be born. Well, in verses 5 through 7, notice. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. He had a wife and the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Verse 5, we begin to move into Luke's orderly account. Before we can get to Jesus, we have to get to the forerunner, John the Baptizer's. And although there are echoes of the Old Testament in this section, the, the elderly barren couple, we hear those echoes there. We come now to a specific time and place. Notice it's the days of Herod, verse 5. Meaning now we know this happened somewhere between 37 to 4 B.C. And it happened in a particular place. Galilee, Judea, Samaria, and beyond. Well, the first character named in Luke's dramatic account is a certain priest named Zacharias. He belongs to the division of priests of Abijah. That's the eighth of the 24 priestly orders. But now this couple is distinguished by the fact that Elizabeth too has her own priestly heritage. Declaring their priestly stock of both husband and wife, and proclaiming them to be righteous, Luke wants to win our hearts for these two early humble characters in his story. The first tragedy emerges 
in Luke's gospel. Despite their priestly positions and their righteous walk with God, Zacharias and Elizabeth are childless and too old to have any hope of a forthcoming child. Luke's opening saga echoes back to those familiar Old Testament stories, Abraham and Sarah who are in need of a son and have Isaac, or Jacob and Rachel who are in need of a son and have Joseph, or Manoah and his wife, you know who they have? Samson, or Elkanah and Hannah who have Samuel. We know the storyline here. We expect God now that we know this is like Abraham and Sarah to step in and bring their barrenness to an end. Well, in verse 9, verses 8 through 10, is a once-in-life opportunity. But look at verse 9. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn the incense. They would cast the lots. They would draw the straws. That way they were sure that God was in charge of which of the priests went in before the altar. And this was as close to God as a priest would ever get going into the temple, except for the high priest once a year on the Holy of Holies who went into the inner sanctum of the temple. But this is a very sacred responsibility. In fact, some scholars think that a priest might be lucky to get to do this this one time in his whole uh, effort of serving as a priest. So the lots are cast and we know therefore that God has chosen Zacharias. It is chosen by the arbitrary decision that is directed by God and not by the decision of men. Zacharias comes close to God. In verse 10, Luke reminds us as a priest goes in, it's so serious that people are outside praying that he will be protected and that all will go well. In verses 11 through 12, we have the divine visitation. And the angel of the Lord, verse 11, appeared to Zacharias standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him. Suddenly the angel comes. Now, the temple was a place where heaven and earth met. And one is never to make light of being in the presence of God then or now. Remember the stories of the Old Testament of the touching of the Ark of the Covenant and instant death. Be careful, Zacharias, as you enter a holy, sacred space. And then we get the word, even as he is afraid, fear not says the angel in verses 13 and 14. Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Your petition has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. Now, Lisa sees the opportunity to name all of our children. uh, Men don't have that right anymore, it seems. And I had, I guess, veto powered if she came up with something like, you know, maybe... Gertrude Gladys or something. I could have said no on one of those. But in Zacharias's day, the naming of the children was the sole right of the father. In this particular instance, it's the true father. It's God who takes over the naming of the boy, and his name will be John. And John's name means Yahweh is merciful. God is merciful. Well, in verses 15 through 17, we learn some things about John. 
First of all, he will be great before the Lord, meaning he will do what is pleasant to the Lord. Secondly, he's going to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and not by intoxicating wine or strong drink. And third, he's already filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the womb of Elizabeth. And fourth, he will be the one to call Israel's sons back to the Lord. And fifth, he comes in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And like Elijah brought a message of judgment and warning to disobedient Israel, so will John the baptizer. Verses 18 through 20, we have good news from the presence of God. You're all familiar with doubting Thomas, but today you run into prove it to me, Zacharias. Prove it to me, Zacharias. Zacharias demands proof. She's an old woman. I'm an old man. We can't have a son. Now the anonymous angel proclaims his name, bearing his credentials in this verse. He says that his name is Gabriel. He's a Gabriel of Daniel 8 and 9 who reveals the mysteries of God. In fact, he says in these verses, 18 through 20, that he stands in the presence of Yahweh. He stands in the presence of God. Therefore, Gabriel is saying, what I'm telling you, Zacharias, has no less authority than the voice of God. I'm the one who stands there right where God is and right where God speaks. Don't question me, Gabriel is saying. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You won't speak until the baby boy is born. There's your sign. You need one. Verses 21 through 23, silence becomes that sign. Now, Zacharias has taken longer than usual to burn the incense before the altar, and the crowd outside gathered to pray for him begins to worry. And they began to think that his delay might actually be an indication of his demise. And so they are troubled that he's not come out. And when he comes out, he's not able to speak. They believe that he has seen a vision. He's struck speechless. Therefore, there's been a divine visitation. And Zacharias' disbelief has not been appreciated by Gabriel. Verses 24 through 25, look at those two verses. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me, and the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among women. At the very beginning here, Luke is about to give us two different ways of receiving the word of God. We can receive it it with belief or disbelief. We can have faith or be faithless. Well, you see, Elizabeth, she received the words of God with favor. Unlike her husband, Zacharias, she's a better example of faith than her husband. You see, Zacharias refused to receive the good gift of God, but Elizabeth embraces embraces it. The fourth coming question looming large in Luke is, how will ancient Israel respond to the stories and the commands of God? With faith or faithless? A second big portion in our text today is verses 26 through 38. From a virgin, Jesus will be born. From a virgin, Jesus will be born. 
following his orderly account, keeping everything in line on the timeline, received the long-awaited place, the angelic proclamation that Mary will bear the very Son of God. Now, the second child is linked closely to the first child. In verse 26 and 36, we're told that six months into Elizabeth's expecting a child, her pregnancy, then we have the story of Mary. Mary begins her own journey through the power of the Holy Spirit. My, my, Gabriel is a very busy angel in Luke chapter 1. There's similarities to be sure, but there are differences. Elizabeth is married older and barren, hoping for a child. Mary, on the other hand, is just engaged. She's still a virgin. She has no need of any expectation of wanting a child. In fact, that would be quite a shock to her system right now. And both the boys, likewise, are messengers of God, both John and Jesus. But there is no mistaking which one serves the other. Why, Elizabeth's child will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, preparing the way of the Lord, but Mary's child will be, in fact, the Lord himself arrived. Well, in verses 26 through 27, we have a clear claim. Notice, the sixth month, verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. There's a clear claim. Those who say the, the teaching of the virgin birth is minimal and weak in text haven't read Luke's gospel. He mentions it twice here in verse 27. He mentions it again in verse 34 to make sure the reader will know that this is a miracle of miracles that behold, they're reminded of the word of Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, she was engaged. It took a divorce to get out of engagement, unlike today, but there was no sexual contact or cohabitation that had to wait for marriage. Behold, make sure he wants you to know she's a virgin. Verses 28 through 30, she's given her special task. And coming in, he said to her, Hell, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Isn't that just like the gospel story? Someone of humble statue, a teenage girl, not even yet married. That God uses her to be a central role player and the salvation history of all of creation. The least expected, she's humble in every measure of man. And then we're reminded in verse 31 through 33, Mary, your son will be the final king. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, 31, and bear a son, and you shall name him, name him Jesus, and he will be great. He will be called the son of most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. 
Son of the Most High is a euphemism for Son of God. Most High is God. He will be the Son of God and he will be a Davidic king. You remember when David was promised there would be no end to his reign? Well, this is a final king who reigns absolutely forever. Unlike Zacharias, verse 34 through 36, Mary accepts a proclamation. Mary says to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Mary has a response of faith. A response of obedience. She believes this child, unlike any other child, before or after, will be the result of the Holy Spirit's divine agency. The Spirit of God will cause this child to be, despite the fact that you're a virgin, Mary. And then Verse 37, from which we get the title of our sermon today. For nothing is impossible with God. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. Look at her obedience. And the angel departed from her. Nothing is impossible with God. Theophilus, I'm going to investigate it all. And I'm going to give it to you in an orderly sequence. I'm going to read everything that's been written about Jesus. I'm going to investigate and talk to eyewitnesses. And I want you to know the story so you can have the truth about everything you have been taught. We start with a whirlwind. Got to put on your seatbelt. Right here, that busy angel is causing the birth of two baby boys. One in the power and spirit of Elijah, the forerunner, and the other, the Lord himself. The barren shall conceive, the virgin shall conceive because nothing is impossible with God. Do you notice the end of verse 38? And the angel departed from her. Realistically enough, the angel departs. Such a heavenly presence, even for Mary, is temporary. Departing the angel seems to mean the angel does not hover over Mary to make her life an easy one. She'll have to ride on the back of a donkey, days' journeys to Bethlehem for the birth. When she gets there, there won't be a luxurious hotel room waiting for her or a midwife, but rather it'll be on the outskirts of the city. The birth will happen in a barn. Joseph will do the best he can helping his wife. Mary, like all who are his messengers, 
face the reality that being the chosen messenger of God does not guarantee any ease. Because faith's journey is always winding and troubling road. God is a God of the impossible. What's impossible for God? For nothing is impossible with God. He both causes the virgin to conceive and raises the dead to life. And with him, the axe head floats and the river stands on edge and water bursts forth from a desert rock. Do you believe? Luke's going to ask you at the end, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe that nothing is impossible? with God. Let us pray. Oh God, what a powerful beginning to a life-changing book. The angel come and declares the forerunner will be born six months ahead of the Lord himself and together they're going to change the cosmos, shake it upside down. They're going to call Israel to repentance and baptism. And then turn to the Gentile and say, he's your savior too. Oh God, may we be a people of faith as we are called to our faith journey that we believe nothing is impossible with God. Amen.